0: But just before we open up God's Word, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again that we can come to you to worship you. And now to hear the, your Word preached to us. I um, pray that you can be with us as we open up your Scriptures and seek to understand uh, some difficult things to comprehend. And I pray that you can open up our minds and that your Spirit may be at work in our hearts to convict us of your truth and to help us, act, help us to act upon it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <sighs> All right. uh, in Talmudic Judaism, it was common for a man to pray, to thank God that I am not a Gentile, a slave or a woman. In Islam, a woman's testimony is worth half of that of a man's in the court of law and the practice of polygamy is positively leg- legislated in the Quran. In Hinduism, the barbaric practice of Suti, which is when a widow is compelled to die with her deceased husband as he is cremated on the Ganges River, was only outlawed in the last 200 years and there are still instances of the practice occurring. In Gnostic Christianity, women needed to become like men to enter the Kingdom of God. In the Roman Empire, in China, and to some degree in the West today, the practice of abortion infanticide punishes women either in the death or injury of their person or in the murder of young girls. This is very evident in China where males outnumber women and second child policies are available only if you have a female the first time around. Yet in Christianity, not only did Christ have female disciples, a radical notion in his day, but a group of female disciples were privileged to be the first to witness his resurrection. Uh, The very first of those being Mary Magdalene. So what we're going to look at today is Um, We're going to try and harmonise the resurrection accounts and we're going to look at some lessons that we can gain from Christ's appearance in Mary Magdalene, that being the first resurrection appearance, and see what the scripture says to us with regards to that. Um, Before we get into that, though, uh, we need to try and set the context for the events. So, later on, we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verse 11 to 18, Uh, in depth, but before we get to that, we kind of have to set the resurrection in context and try and get clear in our minds exactly what order the events took place. Uh, As you probably are aware, um, the details of the resurrection come to us from five different sources. So we have uh, a few events in Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, plus a bit of Acts, uh, John's Gospel, and the Jerusalem Creed, as it's called, which uh, the Apostle Paul cites in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, So what makes this difficult, as you also might be aware, is each of the Gospel writers had their own agenda when they constructed their body of work and they had their own communities of which they were writing to and they didn't necessarily record all the the small details in the same way. They picked and chose which details to include in their Gospel narrative to be consistent with the overall body of work and so, if you look at the Gospel accounts on just the purely face value, it can appear that they can contradict one another or differ in detail. Uh, so, if you are inclined to read, say for example, some atheist blogs on the internet and they have their um, uh, disagreements with the Christian faith and in particular how it's revealed to us in the Bible... They can go to town on some of the differences in the resurrection accounts. So some of the resurrection accounts that differ, I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, We're told in Matthew that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome Zebedee were watching from a distance ministering to Jesus. Um, Sorry, that's a different part. Uh, So the resurrection accounts can differ. I'll give you some examples. In Matthew and Mark, there's one angel in the tomb. In Luke and John, there's two. Uh, In Matthew, uh, the angel is sitting on the stone that's been rolled away. In Luke, the angels are standing. And in Mark, they're sitting down in the tomb. Um, If you read uh, Matthew and Mark, sorry, Matthew, uh, the women that are told to tell the disciples, they go and tell the disciples. In Mark, they don't tell the disciples because they're afraid. And then in the accounts, they differ on which women attended the resurrection site. So in Matthew, it's Mary Magdalene with the other Mary. In Mark, it's Mary Magdalene, the other Mary and Salome. In Luke, it's just it's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the other Mary and the other women. And then in John, it's just Mary Magdalene. So, I mean, there are quite small, minor examples and it's quite easy to work around those and to harmonise them. But things like that leave the resurrection account open to critique. And so it takes us as Christians a bit of mental effort to try and get it right in our heads. That's what I'm going to try and do now. I'm going to try and give you a bit of an account from when Jesus was on the cross through to when Mary Magdalene saw Jesus resurrected. Uh, And unlike yourselves, uh, I had the, re- the luxury of working this out over a three-week period with all the different scriptures in front of me, whereas it's going to be very hard for you to flip around the scriptures, so you're almost going to have to take my word for it for now and then look it up later yourself. Uh, so I'm going to tell you exactly what happened in the order that it happened, and I'll tell you when I'm adding a little bit of speculation in, just in case you're wondering. So as Jesus was dying on the cross, we were told in Matthew that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph so that's James the Lesser, and Salome were watching from a distance, ministering to Jesus. John records that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there as well, and Luke records that women were at the distance watching these things. So, got a group of women uh, watching Jesus on the cross. So, Jesus dies on the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea has an agreement with Pilate to take Jesus' body, and he buries it in a freshly minted tomb. And as he takes the body to the tomb, he wraps it up, the women follow him and they watch where the tomb is. Uh, From that point, the women go to the local spice market and they buy some spices and some ointments. They spend a few hours getting it ready, mixing it together, and then they spend the Saturday obeying the Sabbath, as it is written in the Bible. They rest on the Sabbath day. It says that in Luke. So then we come to Sunday. Uh, very early Sunday morning, a group of women uh, are awake and they make their way over to the tomb of Jesus, which they saw the other day. And as they make their way to the tomb, they discuss among themselves about the prospect of moving a large boulder. They ask, who's going to move the boulder for us? Uh, little did they know that an angel had come, had shook the place, and the boulder moved out of the way, and the guards were clear as well because they were terrified. Um, so we have at least five women... Uh, four of which are named, come into the tomb and their intention is to see the body of Jesus and to embalm it. Uh, They had no understanding at this time that they would be seeing the resurrected Christ. So I'm sure we all can identify with having expectations unmet sometimes when we go to events or places. So that's exactly what the women had, of course, in a good way. Um, So as they arrived at the tomb, they saw that the stone was rolled away. At this point, Mary Magdalene leaves the group of women and makes her way back into town to tell the disciples what she has seen. The other women, they hang around. Um, All of them at this stage think the body has been stolen. So the other women are probably like looking around to see if they can find the body. It's a bit of speculation. But Mary goes back into town and she tells the disciples, the stone is rolled away. Uh, the disciples don't believe her, but Peter and John uh, have a foot race to the, to the tomb to see who can make it first and to see what's going on. Um, before they get to the tomb, the other women have made their way inside the tomb and angels have appeared to them and they've said to the women, the women excluding Mary, Magdalene, uh Why are you looking for the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Go and tell the disciples. So the the group of five or six women start to travel their way back into town while Peter and John are making their way to the tomb, followed by Mary. So if you are confused, that's okay. Um, So it's probably about a 2K journey between where the tomb was and where the disciples were. That's an estimation based on the layout of Jerusalem and where the tomb is believed to be. And there's probably multiple pathways to get to that place. So the women didn't intersect the disciples as they made their way to the tomb, as in Peter and John. So they went different ways. So Peter and John arrive at the tomb and they both go inside. Uh, They don't see any angels or anything like that. They just see an empty tomb. They see the grave clothes folded and they both at that point believe. It doesn't say what they believe in, it just says they believe. Um, After they have looked at the empty tomb, they both go home. Mary Magdalene is waiting outside. After they leave um, we get to our text. Uh, So does everyone follow that? A bit of a recount of the events. Um, So after Mary goes into the tomb she meets Jesus and she becomes the first person to meet the resurrected Christ. Shortly after that, the women who are on their way to tell the disciples what they've seen uh, meet Christ on that road. So they were walking very slow, which a group of people would probably do. Um, so that brings us to our text. So I hope everyone's got a clear idea what's going on. Um, so now we're going to focus our attention just on John 20, 11 to 18 passage. I should note um, that after you harmonise the resurrection accounts, uh, you find that they're not contradictory, but they're actually quite complementary of each other. Um, some of the details that are left out are picked up by other authors. And so when you put them all together, you get quite a full account. Um, there's still a bit of slight speculation, like my speculation over the path to the tomb. But it's very minor. And um, when you synchronise the accounts, you find that there are 11 or 12 resurrection appearances of Christ. Um, five of those occurred on the Resurrection Sunday. So it was Mary Magdalene first, the women second, Peter had a private encounter with Jesus third, fourth was the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then fifth, Jesus met with the ten, and plus a few others. And then the next Sunday, he met with everyone else plus Thomas. Uh, And I'm not going to go through the rest for now. So if I get a chance, I might look at those other accounts at another time, but for now, we're just going to focus on Mary Magdalene, uh, she was privileged to be the very first person to see the risen Christ and to hear him speak. And uh, we celebrate in our culture people who get to do things first, like the first man to Mount Everest. Uh, so Edmund Hillary, the celebrated man. Neil Armstrong, the celebrated man. Mary Magdalene is the celebrated woman in the history of the world. So let's look at John 2011 to 18 in a bit more depth. This is the passage that we're focusing on. So the obvious question is to begin with finding out who this Mary Magdalene is. So in the 1988 movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, The Da Vinci Code and Jesus Christ Superstar, Mary Magdalene is a redeemed prostitute who has a relationship with Jesus. Uh, So this has kind of skewed our understanding of who Mary Magdalene is. We might sometimes respond the other extreme and diminish her role as a disciple of Christ and the first to see Christ risen. Um, So in contrast to these dubious intellectual sources, we have what we learn from Mary Magdalene in the Bible. And other than the resurrection accounts, you don't actually see a lot of Mary Magdalene in the Bible. What we know for certain is that she was not a prostitute. She was actually a woman who Jesus exercised seven demons from. Do you see that in Luke 8.2? Jesus cast out seven spirits from her. And she was also one of the many women who bankrolled Jesus' ministry. So I found this very interesting to find... I mean, if you just ask yourself the question, how does Jesus and twelve apostles live for three and a half years without a source of income? And so we find that there was a group of women who actually contributed to the ministry, uh, Disciples of Christ. Mary Magdalene was one of those. Um, obviously the apostles sold everything they had so that we gave them a bit of a bit of capital to start up with. Um, there's also a traumatic source that claims that Mary Magdalene was a hairdresser by trade. But that's a secondary source. I'm not going to rely on that totally. But it's consistent with what is possible. Um, Mary... Often women in the New Testament are identified by their husbands. So it would be Mary of Zebedee or Salome of Zebedee or Mary of Cleopas. Cleopas and Zebedee are their husbands. But Mary is identified with the place of which she was born, Magdala, which is a town in Galilee. So that's Mary Magdalene, um, a faithful servant of Christ who contributed to Christ and ministered to Christ. Um, so in the text itself, uh, we get a bit of an idea of Mary's emotional state at the time that this resurrection appearance takes place. So I guess if you put yourself in Mary's shoes, she had these expectations for the day, which were definitely not being met. Um, she thought she'd be going to the grave to uh, add some spices to the body of Christ, but instead the body's not even there, the, tombs roll, the stones rolled away. So then Mary's had to go for, go for two 2K brushed walks or runs, um so I don't know about you guys but if I go for a 2k run I'm pretty wrecked after it um especially if I do it twice a 4k run I'm definitely wrecked um so I I'm going to say I'm probably fitter than Mary was but I can't be certain about that so I'm going to say she's pretty tired about this um the scripture doesn't tell us whether or not she had breakfast that morning so she could be a bit exhausted as well um So there's emotional distress and there's physical distress. And she is crying, she's weeping, she's outside the tomb. She doesn't know where the body of Christ is and that's the thing that she's concerned about most. And then she finally makes her way inside the tomb. So it says that in verse 11, uh, she wept as she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Okay, so what does she see in the tomb? She sees two angels. Uh, she sees one at the head of the, where Jesus lay and one at the foot. And that's a bit of a mimicking of what the cherubim did at the mercy seat. But I'm not going to make too much of an emphasis on that. Uh, it doesn't, the thought doesn't cross Mary's mind to ask the angels where Jesus is. Um, but they certainly ask her, Woman, why are you weeping? And her answer is, Because I don't, uh, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. So, at this point, Mary is convinced that Jesus' body has been stolen. That's the only thing she can think of, that Jesus' body has been stolen. Uh, then, of course, Jesus appears to her in verse 14. Um, so, she said this to the angels. Uh, I don't know where Jesus' body is. And she turns around and then uh, Jesus is there. And Jesus says to her, exactly as the angels said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Uh, so Jesus is staying to form in the rest of the Gospels where he asks questions that it seems like he already knows the answer to. And uh, whom are you seeking is a question he last asked to Judas, the chief priest and a bunch of Roman soldiers who came to find Jesus to arrest him. And Jesus said, whom are you seeking? And they all fell in their face. And then Jesus said, whom are you seeking? So, I mean, Jesus obviously knew they were going for him, but... Because Jesus likes to dialogue with us and interact with us. Uh, the next, the way uh, Mary responds to Jesus is quite interesting as well. So, Jesus thinks, sorry, Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener. Now, I didn't even know there were gardeners back in those days. That's uh, the only time in Scripture that this word for gardener is used. Uh, in the Latin, it's hortulanos. Is that right? Close enough. Uh, I couldn't find that in any ancient Latin text. I tried, but <laughs> I couldn't find it. Um, But apparently they did have gardens back in in Rome, in public places especially, and they often accompanied sacred sites. Um, So maybe it gives us a bit of insight into Mary's presuppositions about the the grave itself, obviously owned by a wealthy man and possibly employing a private gardener. Um, And, you know, Jesus, it's not too far away from the truth that Jesus is a gardener. He planted the creation. And you can imagine him, being the sort of guy who gets his hands dirty. He heals people by putting his hands in mud and he writes in the mud and things like that. So I'm just being jovial just there. So Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener. She says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So at this point she still believes that the body has been stolen. Okay, and this brings us to another observation. Um, So I was looking at the trying to break down this passage into the grammar. So I was looking at each word and trying to see how it fits together grammatically. And I came across this term, um, the vocative case. So to give you an example of how the vocative case works in English, be like, Ben, can I borrow your pen? Or, great job in the sermon today, Joe. So you can see there's a comma and a name. It's called the vocative case when you want to emphasize someone's name. So, if we look at the vocative cases in this text, we've got, in verse 13, woman, comma. Verse 14, woman, comma. Mary responds, sir, comma. Jesus responds, Mary, comma. And then she responds, rabbi or teacher. Uh, Full stop. So, they're, they're vocative cases. Um... And that's how the passage fits together, using those to to start and finish the sentences or to stand alone in one case. And so we actually learn a lot about this passage by looking at those, um, perhaps not looking so much at the woman evocative cases, but looking at what Jesus calls Mary and what Mary calls Jesus. So Jesus, first of all, calls Mary woman, which is a generic term. It's not as... um, not as offensive as it sounds. Um, there's not really an English equivalent to that term. Um, it's sort of an endearing term to a female, but it's not to be offensive or dismissive. It's respectful. Um, but it's still quite generic. Um, it's as if you didn't know someone's name. you would say woman or man or sir or something like that. Uh, she responds to Jesus with sir and then Jesus says to her, Mary. So he identifies her by her name. And there's a lot of there's a lot more to that than just calling someone by their name. Uh, so Jesus acknowledges Mary as a person. She's a person with an identity and she valued valuable to him as a disciple. Uh, Jesus was not afraid to call women by their name. Uh, he was he recounts the events um, earlier in Jesus' ministry when he was having dinner at Mary and Martha's house and he refers to Mary and Martha by name and there's another event as well, which I can't remember off the top of my head. So, Jesus here acknowledges Mary as a person. He respects her and values her as a disciple. Um, She's not just a woman to Jesus. She's Mary Magdalene. Um, The way Mary responds to Jesus after she realises it is Jesus is also quite... um, it also gives us insight into their relationship. So Mary calls Jesus Rabbi or teacher. Uh, Mary is correct to call Jesus by that term. In John 13:13, 13, 13, Jesus says, "You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am." And Jesus is a Rabbi; he's a teacher. But what was extremely countercultural in Jesus' day is that he had female disciples. So, as we started this message, Jews prayed that they were neither a Gentile, a slave or a woman. So, women were not taught by rabbis. The rabbis didn't speak to women other than their family members. Um, Women were not talked to by men on the street. And women were not taught the scripture in theological education through the synagogue. Uh, Women had their role in society and it was mostly a role of looking after their husbands. Uh, Women were not really protected from divorce in the way the Bible wants them to be protected and uh, they weren't really respected as valuable members of the um, religious clergy community. Um, Their role was basically to look after their husbands. So Jesus turns that on its head when he recruits women to be his disciples and they sit at his feet and he teaches them the word of God and he calls them by their name. Um, We get an insight into the culture of first century Israel in the Mary and Martha situation. So Martha is a bit flustered that she's trying to prepare a meal for a bunch of guests and her sister Mary isn't helping her. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus teach So Martha goes in and says to Jesus, Hey Jesus, tell my sister to come and help me in the kitchen. And Jesus says to Martha, 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 what Mary is doing is a good thing. So get an insight into the clash of the cultures though. Jesus is saying it's a good thing that Mary is learning from the word of God. Um, Don't take that away from her. Uh, so that's the insight we get from looking at those vocative cases. We see, it, see what Mary Magdalene's relationship was like with Jesus. Um, we move on to something that might be a little strange. Verse 17, Jesus says to Mary, do not cling to me, or that could be translated, do not touch me, uh, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, later, when Jesus appears to the women, they'll fall down at his feet and they grab his feet and they worship him. And when he appears to Thomas, he invites Thomas to touch him. So, is that a contradiction? Uh, No, it's not. Uh, Jesus is not saying, do not touch me because you're not allowed to touch me. He's basically saying, do not touch me because I've got something for you to do, uh, which is to go to the disciples to tell them that I am going to be ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So Jesus is saying, uh, don't wait here and touch me and worship me. You have something to do. You have to go to the disciples. Um, So that brings us to the final point of looking at this text. Uh, Mary Magdalene, as St. Augustine describes her, uh, she was the apostle to the apostles. So we mean that in the sense that Mary Magdalene um, was a messenger. God gave her a message to deliver to the apostles. And she was the chief woman to have that responsibility. Uh, The message to the apostles was that Jesus Christ has risen and that Jesus Christ is ascending to the Father. Uh, She was privileged above all other human beings to have that duty and role. Um, So we honour and respect her for that. We read in verse 18 that she obeyed Jesus and she went and did what she was asked to do. Okay, so now we have a bit of a body of knowledge. So I'd like to summarise that into a doctrine. And uh, sometimes when I'm trying to find the doctrine that I can get out of a body of scripture, I turn to my usual suspect, uh, Calvin's Institutes, and I go right to the back and I look at all the proof texts and I find the verse that I'm trying to study and then I trace that to where he has laid it out in his institutes. And I found that he laid this one under the doctrine of Christ as mediator. So Jesus Christ is our mediator. So I'll just explain that really quickly. Um, Jesus being our mediator is encapsulated in John 20, verse 17. So Jesus said to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my God and your God, so my father, and your father, my God and your God. So Jesus is the mediator between the Father and parallel to that God. It's a parallelism: God, Father and God. Jesus is the mediator. We access the Father and God through Jesus, and we do that because Jesus uh, came down to Earth and He took on flesh. He took on Adam as flesh. He took on. He was the second Adam. He came to do what Adam failed to do and that is obey God's commandments. Uh, Adam failed to keep the one commandment that was given to him and Jesus kept the whole revelation of commandments that were available to him. And He lived a perfect life. He suffered for us on the cross and when we come to have faith in Christ he imputes that to us. Um, Jesus is an advocate for us. He... Sits at the Father's right hand, He prays for us and He advocates for us. Jesus adopts us into His kingdom and He mediates for us. Uh, without Jesus, as sinful human beings, we have, would have no right to access a holy God. But through Jesus, who is holy, uh, we can receive God's holiness and righteousness and approach the throne of God. And we'll be able to do that in a perfect, resurrected body. Uh, in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. So that's what we mean when we call Jesus a mediator. Um, We go to God through Christ and God can only be approached through Christ. Christ is the appointed mediator between man and God. So that is what it generally means to be a mediator. But specifically for women, uh, what does it mean to be a mediator? Uh, We have, um, I guess if we allow Christianity to be less driven by what's revealed in scripture and more what's driven by the culture around us, we're likely to diminish the ability for women to access God through Christ. Uh, We see that all throughout history and we see that in cultures outside of the Christian, Christian landscape that really subjugate and reduce the importance of women in their society Uh, And we see that in first century Judaism, which was not biblical Judaism, it was Talmudic or Babylonian Exilic Judaism. It had been transformed and skewed from what it was meant to be. Uh, We see the Jews praying, thank you Lord that you didn't make me a Gentile, a slave or a woman. Um, So women did not have access to God in the same way men did. Uh, The New Testament... Uh, Jesus not only restored what the Bible teaches about that, the true biblical teaching, but he also opens up the covenant so that women can freely access Jesus. So when we turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither a slave nor free, and there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Now, that is not to say that there is, a, there is not Jews and there's not Greeks or there's not slaves or free. There's certainly slaves. Uh, that there's not women or men because there's certainly differences between males and females. Uh, you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is to say that through faith, every male and female has the same standing and relationship between God and between Christ so, in the New Covenant Kingdom, which Jesus came to establish, uh, we have women who have free access to Christ. Uh, there's no gender, ethnic or economic boundaries that prevent us from accessing Christ. Uh, we also see, if we're looking at a bit of a theology on women, how Jesus was uh, very radical and countercultural in his day, how he had female disciples, Uh, Women were the first to witness the resurrection, which is the central event um, towards the authenticity of the Christian faith. Um, Much of Jesus' teaching was about women as well. He used women in parables, faithful women in parables, which again was quite countercultural to his day. Um, He gave women jobs to do. He was financially supported by women as well, which is really showing us how much God gave up when he left the throne in heaven. He was really humbled to the point where he was financially dependent on women, which again is very countercultural in his day. Um, and Jesus empowered women as well. Um, so Jesus teaches us or well, restores to us what it means to be relating to and respecting women in our cultures and our societies. Um, But he didn't do something new. He did something that should have been the case all along in Israel. Um, There were some limitations to how far a woman could go and I guess those limitations created a culture accompanied by pagan culture to really put women down. But Jesus came to, first of all, restore that to the biblical teaching and then to further open it with the coming of the new covenant kingdom. Um, A few other notes about women throughout the history of Christianity. Um, about two years ago, I read a book by an uh, agnostic sociologist called Rodney Stark, and the book's called The Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And as a sociologist, he sought to understand how Christianity went from a Jesus movement, so Jesus and a few disciples, to the dominant religion of the empire. Um, so 300 years later, uh, practically 100% of the Roman Empire were either nominal or authentic Christians. So how did it get to that point? So he tries to look at all these different things that led to that, purely from a sociological perspective, not accounting for the work of the Holy Spirit, but just looking at some basic sociological evidence that he had available. Uh, So one of the things that Christianity did to transform communities was it increased the marriage age for women. Uh, So 48% of women were married um, over the age of 18 in Christian communities. Uh, In contrast to that, about 75% of pagan women married under the age of 18 and 25% of those were under the age of 11. Um, And a lot of those women were being married to older men and uh, there's all sorts of complications that came into that which I don't want to discuss at the moment. So that's one way... That's one reason why women were so attracted to the, to the Jesus movement or Christianity uh, was that they were being offered some really practical freedoms to marry at a later age. Uh, it was a day and age where women got married a lot earlier. Uh, the average age is about 14 or 15, but there was a stark contrast in the Christian community. Uh, secondly, uh, fertility was an issue in, in the world at that time. Um, although the government tried to encourage women to have more children, It never actually happened, practically speaking. There was a lot of abortion and infanticide in the Roman Empire. Um, And because of that, a lot of women became infertile. The abortion techniques were quite primitive compared to nowadays. Um, So women were swallowing poison essentially and and making themselves infertile for the rest of their lives. Uh, And not to mention other gruesome techniques of abortion. Uh, so that reduced the, the fertility of pagan women, but in the Christian community, abortion and infanticide was prohibited. So women were having more children and uh, maintaining their fertility. Uh, so you've got a natural attrition, a natural increase of children in the Christian community. And so if you're having more babies, you're more likely to have more Christians. Um, so the population of Christians was, was increasing already. And a lot of the women that were attracted to Christianity were actually women of wealth and nobility with lots of influence. Um, We know that because, uh, well, this is what Stark uh, speculates. I don't know if I agree it or not. But he believes that Christians weren't really persecuted that much in the Roman Empire um, on a common level, but the Christian leaders were persecuted. So the persecution was quite limited to uh, Christian leaders on a sort of a, leg, a legislated level, um, whereas any other Christians that died was by accident. Um, so that's his basic thesis. I, I don't think I agree with that, but we'll just go over that for a second. So if that's true, then if you're targeting women from, for persecution, then that says something about the women. It says that they have sort of a influential role within the Christian community, and their name has gotten out, and the authorities have sought to eradicate them, just like other leaders in the church at that time. So, putting all this stuff together, um, we see that um, one of the early drivers of the Christian faith was the abundance of pious and godly women, and to a much larger degree than pious and godly men. Um, So, women, uh, another point is just, if you look at the Reformation as well, the Reformation was something that really took off in academic circles to begin with. Um, The educated were the people who responded best to the Reformation um, as a first and second generation thing. Uh, After that, it filtered down to the common people. Um, But we find that reformed women in the second and third generation and onwards tended to outdo their male counterparts in terms of piousness, zealousness and loyalty to the Gospel. So I just make these points to show that Uh, Theologically speaking, uh, God loves his female disciples and he has high regard for them. And we see that throughout history in Christian communities and Christian lands, women have been held at a higher esteem and at a higher privilege than they would in other cultures. And uh, we're really thankful that God has used them for that regard. So now that we've got a body of knowledge, a central doctrine to try to fit all that together. Uh, i just like to apply this to our lives today. Um, so first of all, um, we've grown up in a day and age where uh, women have quite a big role in our society. Um, so the workplace looks so much different now than it did 50 years ago. I can't say that from experience, but I know... From working in an organisation that has 90% women, that women are definitely out there working and uh, are very capable and good employees. Um, Women have made advances in all sorts of ways in our society. Um, You really know when women have made their mark in society, when you have, well Jackie tells me at least anyway, um, Professor female urologists. Uh, I won't explain what that is, but it just seems like an area where women wouldn't be interested in, but even women are professor urologists. And I can explain that to you after the service if you want. Um, we have women essentially capable of doing almost anything men can do. We have women leaders, we have women CEOs, uh, we have women outdoing their male counterparts and pretty much every time VCA results are released, uh, it would be absolute, absolute foolishness of us to say that men can be proved to be scientifically more intelligent and capable than women. I think we've definitely moved past the time where you can say that. And perhaps we've even caught up with what the Bible teaches us. Uh, on the flip side, uh, things, have, things in our society have made it more difficult for women. Um, so I guess there's obviously the militant feminism which asks a woman to do everything, uh, to work a full-time job on the same level as men and to have a family and to look after a home, which ends up being the case. Uh, we've had an increase in divorce, which often penalises the woman, raising children in a single-parent household on a small wage. Um, so that is a way, women have been penalised more in the last 50 years than perhaps in the past. And uh, we've already mentioned that even... Uh, the sex selection abortions literally wipes out a generation of women. Um, we see that the women are being objectified more in our time than perhaps any other time. And um, this is so much pressure on women in our society. So we have two things going on. We have um, capitalism producing all these modern conveniences that make it easier for women to go to the workplace. And earn a living and to be free, to be less dependent on men um, and to be able to utilise those talents that they have. But then on the flip side, we have um, all these other factors coming in that actually bound women to these horrible lifestyles. Um, we've seen prostitution being recognised as a legitimate profession by the tax office and the sex slave trade is definitely alive and well, even in Melbourne. There's just a lot of pressure on women from both sides. But there's advances and then there's other bad things as well. So that's what our culture tells us. So what do we learn about that from the scripture? So I think I'm just going to finish by drawing out a few lessons from this text, both for how men are to interact with women and how women are to interact with men. Just trying to keep faithful to what we observe in Jesus in John 20. So, we see, first of all, that Jesus affirms the person uh, of Mary, by Colton, which we get from when he refers to her as Mary. So There's more to that than just saying her name. Uh, it's a very loaded statement. He affirms her person. So, as men, if we are to follow Jesus' lead on this, uh, we are to affirm the person of our women as well. Um, So we are to thank God for the women that he's put in our lives. Uh, We are to respect them, to honour them, um, and to value them. But also uh, not to objectify women, which our culture feeds us with. Uh, Our culture is telling us to do. And uh, not to allow women to objectify themselves as well. So to do whatever we can to try and break this curse that women have to face of being objectified. Um, Because even women themselves are confused about, you know, what their identity is in this day and age. Um, So uh, if we have wives and daughters and mothers and friends, um, that's something that we can definitely help with as men and not put any more pressure on our women than they need, than they face already. Uh, And secondly, one that seems really obvious to our day and age Uh, is to really utilize the skills abilities and talents of the women among us so we see here that jesus jesus gives mary a job to do and it's pretty it's a pretty big job Uh, he tells her to be the first person to bring to the apostles um, the news that he is going to be ascending to heaven and for jesus to ascend to heaven means for him to sit at the right hand of god and to rule uh, the world and jesus assigns mary with this job. Uh, So, if Jesus can trust Mary with the news, with some of the most important news the world has ever received, uh, we can certainly uh, respect the abilities of the women around us and the talents um, to do jobs as well. Um, There's obviously limitations in that from the scripture. Um, If we are to be faithful with God, uh, I'm not going to discuss Uh, the issue of complementarianism or egalitarianism. I'm just going to take it what's given here, uh, that women are capable um, of skills, of ministry skills and abilities and talents. So that's what we can learn from men from this passage. Uh, One other thing I thought about on the way here, actually. Um, When Jesus first meets the disciples, so the male disciples, straight away he's like, why didn't you believe the women? they told you I'd risen and you didn't believe them. So he rebukes them for not believing, the women. Um, but Mary was kind of in the same boat. She she also knew that Jesus rose and she just kept, the idea was stuck in her mind that Jesus' body has been taken. So no matter what evidence was before her, she just couldn't accept that. So in a way, she was also sinful as well. She didn't understand the scriptures. She was ignorant. Um, she was only there for loyalty and perhaps a little bit of superstition as well. Um, but Jesus doesn't rebuke her for that. He's very gentle with her. So maybe that's another lesson we can learn as well. We can be loving and gentle. I guess that goes both ways. Um, so lessons for Jesus from Jesus for women, and I'll finish on this. Uh, we see that the women were extremely, extremely loyal to Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross, all the men had run to their homes out of fear, but the women remained. They were the ones that stood there and ministered to Jesus from a distance. They prayed for Jesus as he was dying on the cross. They observed where Jesus was buried. Um, And without that, we wouldn't have been able to have these resurrection appearances in the way that we have. And they prepared spices for Jesus. And they were the first to visit the grave of Jesus. They told the disciples about Jesus. And they were privileged to receive the first resurrection appearances from Jesus. So we see in this, not necessarily um, extreme foresight or insight into the scriptures from the women, but we see loyalty to Jesus. Um, so that's something that women can learn from this passage. From A, a godly woman is someone who is loyal to Jesus uh, and loyal to her loved ones. Um, so that's one lesson. Uh, the second lesson is obedience to Jesus. So in a day and age when you're given all these different messages from our culture, Uh, We can learn from Mary Magdalene exactly what a biblical woman is to do and that is to obey Jesus. So Jesus gave her the task. He said, don't touch me or don't cling to me. I've got something for you to do. I want you to go to the disciples and I want you to tell them that I've risen and that I'm going to ascend to be the king, the judge and the mediator between God and mankind. Um, She didn't hesitate. She didn't stay on his feet and hang on. She got up and she went and did the job. Um, She obeyed what Jesus commanded her. And so that's a valuable lesson, not just to women but to everyone, that when Jesus tells you to do something, then you do it. Uh, Jesus is the king. He is the mediator. He is the judge. He is the, the giver of the law. And when Jesus tells us to do something, it's our duty to him as redeemed believers to obey him. So that's the lessons for men and women from this text. I'm just going to have a closing point. Um, The authenticity of the resurrection is probably increased by the situation where women were the first witnesses of Christ. If I was to make up a story in that day, I would not have written uh, women to be the first witnesses of Christ. If I was trying to win Jewish people over to the Christian cause and I was to manufacture a story, I wouldn't be writing about Uh, women to be my first witnesses, to be the apostles to the apostles and to be the people who delivered the good news. Uh, In that day and age, something like that probably would have skewed the reliability of the Christian testimony. Um, So I guess we thank God that the resurrection is not something uh, man could have ever thought up themselves, just like many other things of the Christian faith. And I thank God that he did use uh, godly and devoted women to deliver us the most amazing news that Jesus conquered death, rose from the dead and would be ascending to rule from his throne. So I praise God for the life of Mary Magdalene and the many things that we can learn from her and I pray that we can continue to um, value her as someone that we can learn from. So Let's res- finish up our service today. By singing, I'll give Jen a bit of time to come up. One of my favourite hymns of all time, uh, Lord Be My Vision. So that's 419. We sang this song at my wedding and uh, at about verse 4 we had bagpipes come in and I was like standing behind the the bagpipes behind me and it's like it sent these Emotional ways right through my heart, out my body. So, don't think the same thing's going to happen today, but it's a great song, that's what I'm trying to say. So, 413.